Post Reports is brought to you by Purina. You care about where your food comes from, whether it's for you or your pets. That's why Purina makes every ingredient count and is committed to responsible sourcing of ingredients. Learn more at Purina.com cares. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, good afternoon. This is Tolu Oloranipa with The Washington Post. Hi, this is Amy Britton calling from The Post. This is Peter Jameson from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, July 29th. Today, what we learned from Barr's testimony to Congress, what Tasmanian poppies have to do with the U.S. opioid crisis, and a new kind of concert. This week, Attorney General William Barr testified for the first time in his tenure in front of the Democratic-controlled House, the House Judiciary Committee. Good morning, Chairman, Ranking Member Jordan. I'm pleased to be here this morning. And it came at a time when he's facing a ton of questions about how he has led the Justice Department under Trump. Critics allege, you know, he's helping Trump politically in ways ranging from policing in cities that match up with President Trump's campaign message to intervening in criminal investigations of Trump friends and questioning mail-in voting in a way that Trump has and election experts have not. I'm Amber Phillips. I analyze politics for The Fix blog at The Washington Post. And how would you describe the tone and tenor of the way that Attorney General Barr was interacting with these members of Congress? Barr came in ready to rumble. He was pretty contemptuous almost of members of Congress. Barr's supporters will say he kept getting cut off by Democrats in the House who wouldn't let him answer. That's that's a fair criticism, I think, of how the hearing went. Mr. Barr, if I Yeah, but this is a hearing. I thought I was the one that was supposed to be heard. Well, let me, and I'm going to get there. But Barr submitted an opening statement the night before that made clear that, you know, he wasn't going to play the role of like a truly independent attorney general, see no party, see no politics kind of person the way he was, say, in his confirmation hearing. The president has not attempted to interfere in these decisions. On the contrary, he has told me from the start that he expects me to exercise my independent judgment to make whatever call I think is right, and that is precisely what I've done. He was very defensive from the very beginning, and he went out right in front to say, okay, President Trump is like, he painted him as this consummate professional president, giving Barr complete freedom to do what he needs. But that certainly is not what we see based on Trump's public comments on law enforcement, where he regularly injects his personal opinion in ways that other presidents haven't. And Barr has received a lot of criticism for the fact that you have federal law enforcement officers who are in Portland right now who are taking really aggressive tactics against protesters. What did Barr have to say about the use of those tactics, but also about his role in deciding that that was going to happen? Like, did he basically say that this was his decision because these are federal law enforcement officers, or did he punt that more toward the president? Barr was defiant about the criticism facing what he owned as his decision to send federal agents into these U.S. cities. The evidence on the ground is that protests in most of these cities, Portland being a a minor exception, had been fizzling out since May. And then sending in these federal troops gave protesters something to rally against and and a reason to go out every night. 
chose to focus on some of the black clad protesters coming out every night and attacking specifically this federal courthouse in Portland. Every night for the past two months, a mob of hundreds of rioters have laid siege to the federal courthouse and other nearby federal property. The rioters have come equipped for fight, armed with powerful slingshots, tasers, sledgehammers, saws, knives, rifles, and explosive devices. And he was unrelenting about that, even as Democrats tried to argue, well, like, for the most part, these are peaceful protesters. And again, reports on the ground do bolster Democrats' argument that for the most part in these cities and in Portland, these are peaceful protests. The inspector general at the Justice Department, an internal watchdog, said last week that they will look at police force in Portland as well as police force clearing out that Lafayette Square Park at the White House earlier this year. It also seems like Attorney General Barr has been noticeably absent in this national conversation that we've been having about the future of policing and about systemic racism and injustice that is part of the policing system in America. What did Barr say about that and what is his plan for police reform? You're right, Martine. He hasn't been a major voice in this despite leading the top law enforcement agency in the U.S. as Americans debate police brutality and and racial inequality. And so this was his chance to talk about it. And he did acknowledge some racial inequalities in how police treat Black Americans, but you referred to it as history, saying, okay, well... Until just last 50 years ago or so, our laws were and our institutions were explicitly racist, explicitly discriminatory. He largely brushed aside today's concerns among Americans of color uh, and their supporters. Barr straight up said there's not systemic racism among police in the United States. Police forces today are far more diverse than they've ever been. And there are uh, both more black police chiefs and more black officers in the ranks. Although the death of George Floyd at the hands of the police was a shocking event, the fact is that these events are fortunately quite rare. He tried to cite statistics that, that show that, you know, perhaps white men are, are shot at or even killed at a higher rate than black men. The statistics don't show that when you look at the U.S. population. Black men absolutely are shot at by police and at a higher rate than, than white men or any other race in America. And he just... He just didn't seem like he wanted to be a major advocate for the Black Lives Matter movement, but I I would take it even a step further. He didn't want to almost give it any credence, I would say, because perhaps he felt like to do so would undermine his reasoning for sending federal agents to Portland, where he was adamant in maintaining these protesters had a negative intent rather than a positive one. Uh, You know, at one point in the hearing, he refused to say that he would instituted department policy to limit tear gas being used against peaceful protesters, saying, well, you know, sometimes it's a valuable tool, even among peaceful protesters. Did Barr talk about the election, about voting, about concerns about foreign interference? He got asked by Democrats about all of that. He has said multiple times he's worried about foreign actors manipulating voting by mail at a large-scale November. He repeated that Tuesday. He acknowledged he has no evidence to back up that concern. And I should add that election officials say what he's warning about is totally unlikely. But, you know, he said, I have common sense. 
Representative David Sicily, a Democrat from Rhode Island, asked him, Is it ever appropriate, sir, for the president to solicit or accept foreign assistance in an election? And Barr said, It depends what kind of assistance. Which is just a jaw-dropping statement, Martine, because it's not appropriate and it's not legal. It's very illegal to accept foreign help to try to win your election. Trump was impeached for just that kind of accusation by the House a couple of months ago, where election officials and where, you know, intelligence analysts want Barr and the president to be tough on, they've been weak. And Barr, especially on Tuesday, was. It also seemed like there were a lot of questions going into this about Roger Stone and about situations in which the president has successfully protected his friends or allies, either from criminal prosecution or from from punishment and jail time. And it seems like that those are the situations where Barr is in his diciest position, right? Like he is supposed to be the kind of criminal enforcement officer in chief. And these are situations where the president has basically like done the runaround of the criminal justice system. What did he have to say about about that and his relationship with the president on that? Yeah, he maintained that the president wasn't telling him what to do. He wouldn't speak specifically to in any private conversations of, of any kind he's had with the president. So you couldn't get him specifically to say, no, the president never told me to reduce the sentence for Roger Stone, for instance, or to drop charges against Michael Flynn, even though he pleaded guilty the, to those or any number of actions that Barr's received criticism from. But what he did was try to cast himself as as this attorney general doing unpopular things that he knows will look political, but he truly thinks they're right. In the case of Roger Stone, Trump's longtime friend who was found guilty of lying to Congress and intimidating witnesses, among other things, Barr said he felt like it was fair to intervene into that case and to recommend to the federal judge that he does not get seven to nine years, which is what the federal prosecutors on the case were calling for. But Barr said, listen, and this is a direct quote, do you think it's fair for a 67-year-old man to be sentenced to prison for seven to nine years? And then he cast himself as somebody who was doing something that he knew would be controversial, but he felt it was right. Almost as if he's being an impartial attorney general because he's helped the president's friends. And so what was the big takeaway from Attorney General Barr's stance on that? Barr is totally uncowed by criticism that he's doing the president's bidding. He does not seem to care at all that he's being cast by his critics and by Democrats specifically as as this henchman is literally what Nancy Pelosi called him. She also called him a blob for President Trump. He does not care. He's going to continue down this path that he's on, which he's argued is seeing justice impartially. But when you look at the totality of everything he's done that's raised criticism, it is unquestionably matched up with what President Trump has wanted. There's does not seem to be any end in sight and, and a, like a multi-hour lashing out by Democrats in public at this hearing probably won't change that. Amber Phillips reports on politics for the fix.
We're now in a in a paddock of poppies, a field of poppies, probably I would say 10 hectare paddock, beautiful paddock just coming on into flower. Where have you been traveling? We were in Tasmania. That's Peter Worski. You want my name in that again now? My, I'm, I'm Keith Rice and I'm the uh, Chief Executive of Poppy Growers Tasmania. That's something uh, that I've been doing for the last 33 years. Poppies in Tasmania are a huge part of the global market. That's where a lot of the chemicals for oxycodone and hydrocodone that have fueled the opioid crisis come from. Across all of the alkaloids that are contained in the, in the crop, morphine, codeine, thebane, nostriplan, or aparvin, we provide approximately 50% of the world demand. Northern Tasmania is where they're mostly grown, and it's a beautiful area. It's meadows and rugged mountains. The fields are beautiful, just these incredibly beautiful flowers for acres and acres. So why are the poppies there? The poppies are there because Tasmania is a very good place to grow poppies. It's the right climate. We have long sunlight hours, not too hot, not too cold. The plant appears to like that. It's difficult to move poppies anywhere else because you're on an island. It has been and continues to be a highly, it would be the most highly regulated crop in Australia. And so describe to me how the supply chain works from these fields in Tasmania to the opioid market in the U.S.? The farmers grow the poppies. They're independent farmers. There's hundreds of them in Tasmania. There's probably 400 paddocks like this in the state. They grow the poppies. This will be harvested in February. They sell the poppies to one of three processors. It'll uh, go off to the factories. One of them was once a subsidiary of Johnson Johnson until 2016. That company shipped to another Johnson & Johnson subsidiary in the United States where what they call concentrated poppy straw from Tasmania is refined into hydrocodone, oxycodone, codeine, morphine, so on. And how did Johnson & Johnson get into this business? Because I associate Johnson & Johnson with something like baby powder or Band-Aids or just like random household items and not with the opioid market. Well, Johnson Johnson also is a pharmaceutical company. They got involved decades ago. They purchased a company called Tasmanian Alkaloids. And Tasmanian Alkaloids made a kind of brilliant discovery. They created a poppy that was laden with something called Thebane, which is what you make hydrocodone and oxycodone out of. So once they discovered that the poppies in Tasmania were very potent or very powerful or very useful, they decided to get more into that market. Well, they created that poppy there. They did it on purpose. They took a bunch of regular poppy seeds, subjected them to some chemicals that just randomly changed their genetics. And then they grew thousands of these plants. And then they found that by messing up their genetics, they came up with one special strain that had lots of thebane. And that's the one that they picked out. And then they bred that one. How did it change the opioid market? What made it much easier to make hydrocodone and oxycodone. Normally, thebane is just like a tiny part of the opiates in a poppy. So by getting a poppy that was full of it, just made it much easier to produce oxycodone and hydrocodone. So what has been the experience of the farmers who have been developing these poppies for Johnson & Johnson? Well, the first thing Johnson & Johnson had to do 
through their subsidiary, Tasmanian Alkaloids, was get people to grow these new poppies. Poppies were just another crop that farmers grew. We tried to encourage production. You know, farmers aren't going to just take on a crop and devote lots of land to them without knowing that they're going to get some money out of it. At that stage, we didn't have enough, we weren't getting enough material through the factory to keep it fully occupied for 12 months. We are usually running out of, we had all this extra capacity from about September through to January. So in order to entice farmers to grow these poppies and to grow them in a way that sort of maximizes their potency, they started offering the farmers luxury cars for the person who grew the best crop. The car, the car acted as a, it was a brilliant and Rick Rockcliffe's idea. I suggest that we should maybe give it a car or a tractor and a load of irrigation pipes to incentive. They gave them a Jaguar one year, a Mercedes one year, a BMW the next year, and obviously this made poppy growing somewhat popular and competitive. It did have a dramatic effect. The farmers tried all sorts of techniques to grow the best crop of poppies. And they would advertise this? They'd just be like, hey, farmers, whoever can grow the best poppy, you get a Jaguar? It was competitive. People were very proud if they had the top crop. That's something that they would boast about. But in, when the car was about... And the farmers would be saying, oh, I reckon I've got the car. She's a beautiful crop. Look at that crop out there. It's a beautiful crop. Or I reckon, you know, I reckon Peter, oh, you'll see Peter's crop over there. I reckon Peter's going well for the car this year. They weren't the most expensive models of each range. It was the cheapest Jag you could buy. But I think in those days it was about $60,000, which was nothing compared to the advantages it gave in increased productivity and more raw material to process. And so then how did that change the total amount of poppies that came from Tasmania? Well, it boomed. How did that translate to the U.S. market, the fact that all these farmers were growing more poppies? Well, this helped the people who wanted to make oxycodone, hydrocodone, much of which went to opioid pill makers in the United States, including Purdue, which made oxycontin. And so were there any limitations on the amount of poppy byproduct that could come to the U.S. and fuel the opioid market? I mean, I, I would imagine that wouldn't it be something that would be somewhat restricted? It is. Uh, and this was a critical issue for them because for years, uh, international and U.S. drug policy said, we want to get most of our opiates from Turkey and India. Those are the traditional suppliers. We don't want poppies to be grown all over the world because then we'd end up with lots of diversion, lots of illicit use. So Australia, Johnson & Johnson and other people lobbied for years and said, we want a bigger part of the United States market. They eventually got it. So how did the regulations change? So they decided that the drug substance that was in their poppies, the thebane that was turned into oxycodone and hydrocodone, that would not be limited by those previous rules. Even though it was a narcotic raw material, which is what was limited under the law, they said, we won't count thebane under that law. That basically meant that there was no limitation on the amount of poppies that could be imported to the U.S. The DEA still regulated the total amount that could come into the United States. They have annual quotas for imports, annual quotas for production, but sort of lifted much of the limit that was on Tasmania and uh, Johnson and Johnson. Do Johnson and Johnson or the poppy industry in Tasmania do they see themselves as having any role in the opioid crisis in the U.S.? No, they see themselves as a company that was just trying to make 
painkillers for people who are in pain, for patients. The fact that there was diversion, uh, abuse, and so on was something that lay outside of their responsibility. Tasmanian farmers, under very strict licensing conditions, they grew under contracts, and uh, any ex- any problem in the United States has nothing to do with the U.S. with the Tasmanian poppy farmers. But does anyone else see them as part of the cause of what is now a truly terrible crisis? Yeah, lots of people think that the drug companies and the DEA were producing irresponsibly large amounts of opioids, much of it, you know, stemming from Tasmania. And they should have known long ago that lots and lots of their drugs were being abused and that there was just too much of it. They should not have produced so much. And so have they faced any legal action for all of the poppies that they produced? Nothing specifically regarding the poppies, although Johnson & Johnson lost a big lawsuit in Oklahoma. They're been asked to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to Oklahoma for creating a public nuisance there. And so what is the state of Johnson & Johnson's role in the poppy industry or in the opioid industry now? They got out of the business. In 2016, they sold both of those subsidiaries that I mentioned, Tasmanian Alkaloids and Naramco, which was making the hydrocodone and oxycodone. It was very fortuitous timing because the DEA started to crack down and lower the amount of hydrocodone and oxycodone that could be produced. So the fact that Johnson & Johnson sold these poppy companies in Tasmania, how has that affected the farmers there? Well, the whole market's turned on them, and they're not producing nearly as much. Prices have come way down. They've stopped offering the cars. They've stopped offering luxury vacations for the top crop. A lot of them are moving on. They also say that they're very resentful about how sometimes they're portrayed in the Australian media, which is, look, these guys are making so much money. Did people get rich from poppy farming here? No, no, they don't. I mean, that's... uh... No, no one could claim they've got rich out of growing poppies. The average farmer, I doubt whether they'd get $10 an hour out of their farm for the time they put in. Uh, It's my observation that everybody's making money out of agriculture except the farmers. So while the manufacturers and makers of opioids in the United States were making lots of money, that's why it became such a big business, the farmers didn't really make a lot of money. I guess a handful every year would win a BMW. For, but for the most part, they weren't striking it rich based on poppies. And so what are they going to do now that poppies are no longer like the lucrative crop for them? Sheep. Sheep's big now. Sheep somehow have come back. <laughs> <laughs> the feature is sheep. <laughs> Peter Worski is a business reporter for The Washington Post. And now, one more thing. might sound like a bunch of random voices singing a bunch of random things, but what you're listening to is broadcast from home. 
It's a fascinating collaborative work by composer Lisa Bilawa, composed entirely from words and voices crowdsourced from strangers in isolation. On her website, Bilawa asks for written testimonies from whoever might care to share them, answering questions about their time in quarantine, like, when you first wake up, what do you remember? What are you most afraid of? What do you hope? These written testimonies are then set to melodies and arranged for every vocal range by Bilawa, who then posts the scores for the next wave of participants. They sing a selection of lines and submit them. The collected phrases, like, I want to sit across from you, I don't want to meet you for happy hour online, are then layered and formed by Bilawa into a spellbinding, sparsely accompanied, socially distanced virtual chorus. It's hard to imagine any composer thriving creatively in our current circumstances, but especially Bilawa. For one thing, she's big on group collaboration. In 2013, her Chrissy broadcast assembled over 800 professional, student, and amateur musicians to cluster and wander around a former airfield in San Francisco, performing what she calls a massive spatialized symphony. She's also inspired by public spaces, and the intimacy that comes with public assembly. Her 2007 work, Chance Encounters, was a site-specific work in which the performers arrive individually to a park in Lower Manhattan. They converge into a single musical unit, and then disperse back into the bustle of the city. And lastly, she's a composer who loves life in the big city. She once told an interviewer that walking around the city was her surefire way to fall in love with humanity again. Even the words sung by the soprano in Chance Encounters come from stray utterances overheard and collected around New York. Which is all to say that for a composer like Bilawa, losing access to people is like losing her instrument. Bilawa's work summons much of its emotional force from the very things that COVID-19 has taken away. All of this makes Broadcast From Home not just a mesmerizing portrait of life in quarantine, but a fascinating document of Bilawa's versatility as an artist. As each new weekly chapter of the project arrives, its arc broadens, its story grows, and the distance it overcomes is transformed into an uncanny intimacy. Broadcast From Home is a piece that plays with absence and presence, isolation and community, fear and solace. And it might sound a lot like the voices in your head. Michael Andor Broder is a classical music critic for The Post.
That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. And thank you to all the listeners who filled out our audience survey. We were literally overwhelmed with responses, and it is super helpful in shaping the podcast going forward. If you want to support Post Reports even more, one thing that you can always do is subscribe to the Post. You can even try one month for a dollar. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. 